Okay, so today we celebrate Pentecost, and I thought about preaching on Acts 2, which is kind of the traditional text. Um, I'm going to weave it in, but I want to keep on going through our series in regarding loving God. So I'm going to do that. Um, I actually don't have a question to start my sermon. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Tell me how you really feel. But I have like seven more questions later. So um, I'm going to for Yeah, I will. I absolutely will. Many of you might walk out today. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I want to forewarn you that today is really about introspective work. Um, I don't think that we can do this particular section of this particular passage without introspection. So I'm forewarning you so that way you won't be too angry with me. Um, but I think that it's really essential that we look at this text um, originally when I had prepared this whole series last year. So when I kind of prayed through what it would look like, um, I thought that today I would be talking about loving our neighbor. And I thought from there, I would springboard us into this beautiful like four-month series on how we can live missional lives. And then I read the text again this week, and God was like, man, we're not going to do that. And I was like, OK. Um, in our previous weeks, we've been exploring what it means to have life. And as we see, um, as Marlene read for us, thank you again, um, and she's have you ever heard, I, I, a pastor told me one time, if you get tired of hearing the same thing, that means you're finally getting it. So if you're tired of me, I, I saw Marlene sigh when she read it for the, the seventh week. Yeah. Um, but that, if you are getting tired of it, it means it's sinking in. So I'll just keep on going. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So that's your inner, with your soul. That's your whole being. Your strength is actually weakness to let it go. And with all your mind, so every single thought, uh, reasoning for God. That's the three-second summary. And then it says, and your neighbor as yourself. And as I was, again, preparing for this, um, I was thinking neighbor, 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 neighbor. But it says something really critical here. It says, and your neighbor as what? When we usually hear this passage, what's the, what's the focus? Who's the subject? I think, at least for, since I have been an intentional follower of Jesus for the past 17 years, that's exactly what I would say probably until Monday. There's actually another subject in there, which is yourself. It stands within reason that if you don't know how to love yourself, do you think that you can love your neighbor well? I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like if you struggle to love yourself, then how can you love your neighbor? Because I'm not, I'm not going to make you raise your hand if you have like your a difficult neighbor or something like that. Um, but neighbor, obviously, with our English language, we picture the house to the left, the house to the right, or maybe the somebody sitting next to us at work, but it's more expansive than that, right? It's the people that really cross paths in our lives. 
And so really, while I would have loved to talk about our neighbor, I feel like I'm supposed to talk about us this morning. Now, the, the tension for me and the difficulty with that is that we already are exposed and kind of live into a pretty selfish Christianity. And I know that's a pretty strong kind of statement. But I think the reality is, especially just culturally, is that we're very used to individualism. And I would say that that's something that we value, right? Um, with the, as, as Americans, we, we strongly value individualism, what it means to, to go about my way, to find my path, to go my journey. It kind of sounds familiar, right? I mean, that's something that we value as a nation, I think. Uh, the American dream, what is the American dream? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, yeah. I, and I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily be critical of that um, and and beat up some of the the strongly held values of our nation. But I do think that we need to kind of balance it with what Scripture says. And so my tension here this morning is that if I'm talking about ourselves, is that our, our filter for hearing it can be very self-oriented. And my goal is not that it would be just that it would stop with ourselves. But what's the whole point of this text? Love your neighbor as yourself. So love yourself as your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's this cyclical sort of activity. So um, my, my warning is, is as, you're, as I'm adding a warning to my warning, I guess, um, as you're being introspective, where it really comes alive is when you're giving it to other people. So as you're doing the interior work, how it manifests itself in relationships is equally important. Fair? OK. So love your neighbor as yourself. So now I will ask, well, let me, let me summarize. This is not a question for you to ask, but I, I do want to kind of give a summary question for you to consider. This is something that I want you to wrestle with, not just this morning, but uh, in the coming weeks and months ahead which is, what or who is our true self in Christ? What or who is our true self in Christ? I say what because there seems to be some aspects of our self in Christ that people can see. But then who is that identity word? What and who, or what or who, is our true self in Christ? Does anybody have like a really good answer they want to share for us? But I feel like that's such an essential part of our, our walk is our life. Um, just, just out of curiosity, um, if you have been within, I know, I know some of us have maybe had roots in the Catholic Church, in the Lutheran Church, or non-denominational, Baptist, whatever, whatever brings you here this morning. Um, if you could, just so we could see, if you've been involved with a church community for over uh, two years, could you raise your hand? Okay. Um, what about 10 years? What about 30 years? What about 50 years? I won't go any further. <laughs> I feel like whether it's two years or 50 years or beyond, this is a question that we should probably be able to answer, don't you? I, I mean, we really should. We should be able to say, who we really are, our true self in Christ. But I think we would all kind of hear crickets because that's a, also a very difficult 
question, not, not just for me to answer, but also for me to ask. Because there is an element that your true self is certainly going to be individual, personal, but then there's also a communal aspect that shapes who we are in Christ, right? Because we're a part of a body. So it's not just Sean and Sean does his thing and go forward. It's Sean as part of House of God, for example. We're a body together. So part of this true self is knowing not just my personal identity, but our communal identity as well. And it's harder to know my communal identity when I'm not intentionally focused in community. So. My first real question, and this is, if you have a bulletin, it would be good, or if you type on your phone or whatever you do. Like I said, this is introspective work, but that you could write down on. There's pens behind your. So the first question I have is, which is when I was reading it, is like, who do you think you are? I don't mean it like that. <laughs> right? But I couldn't think of a better way to say it. So. Who do you, it's all about the inflection, I guess. Who do you think that you are? Maybe if I throw that in there. Who do you think that you are? I mean, if somebody were to ask you to describe who you are, what would you say? I love the, I love, I wish I could put your face right up there. <laughs> that's, that's the right face. It's like, I don't, I don't know. Who do you think you are? Just in general, you may not like the answer. And you don't, I'm not asking you to say it out loud. OK? Well, you are going to say something, though, Lori, unless now you don't want to. I'm a forgiven child of God. OK. See, I, I, and I, I, you know I love that answer. But I don't think that's just the, all of our answer, is it? I can be like, yes, I'm a beloved son of God. Correct. But there's other things, and I think you're picking up on that, Rayan, too, when you're laughing. It's like, oh, I've got some other stuff that I think that I am, too. And what is that list? I, I, I want us to be honest with ourselves. Who do you really think that you are? Because even though I could say, for example, I'm a beloved son, does that mean that's what I really think that I am? I mean, scriptural text is very clear about my belovedness. But does that mean I, I really believe it? Because I, I love how uh, the text moves us from mind into love your neighbor as yourself. I see that as such a beautiful transition. It's like, where does most of our negative or healthy talk take place? In our mind, right? So how our mind is viewing ourselves will largely determine how we love ourselves and which will largely determine how we love other people in our lives. So if we have a low opinion of ourselves, for example, I won't make you raise your hand, but you're all familiar with people pleasing, right? Right? And a lot of times that can happen as a result of uh, avoiding conflict, but it can also happen as a result of not having a high view of yourself. And so we do things to please other people so that way we can feel better about ourselves. As an example, um, how many of you have been in a relationship before where you felt like you held less power in the relationship? Yeah? There's some high fives. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, 
I mean, it starts out in life really early, right? You're a child, and it becomes very apparent very quickly that you don't hold very much power. Um, and that causes tension. But maybe at work with an employer, that something's not happening the way that it should. And you feel like you should speak up, but what prevents you from doing that? The lack of power. For some reason, that lack of power is somehow shaping who you think you are. If an injustice is an injustice, shouldn't we speak out, for example? Probably so. But because of that lack of power, because of how we view ourselves, our filter, that impedes us from doing potentially the right thing. So who do you think you are? I don't want you to necessarily write it all out. These are to take away, to process throughout the weeks. Um, the next question I have for you is, do you love yourself? And how do you know? This seems like the self-help section at Barnes & Noble's right now. Do you love yourself? And how do you know? That's a difficult question, isn't it? Now I'm kind of getting deeper. <laughs> I can see by the faces. First we were all smiling, and now everybody's really somber. Like, oh my gosh, Sean. Do you love yourself, and how do you know? Uh, taking it outside of yourself for a moment. Have you been around somebody that you know they just love themselves? Not in like a narcissistic, selfish sort of way, but... <laughs> yeah. But they, they genuinely, they love themselves. They take care of themselves. Um, you could see that they are very comfortable in their own skin. Have you ever been around a person like that? Would you say that they look um, pretty, I mean, they could be grieving, they can be in sorrow, they can be all of those things, angry, mad, I'm not saying any of that. But at the end of the day, would you say that they feel kind of like tied down, chained down, like they just hate life? No, they, they seem free, don't they? It's that comfort in their skin to be who they really are. It's always interesting to talk to those people to see how they got to that place. And a lot of times, you'll notice that their story is often wrought out of grief and suffering, not out of everything was great and OK. Um, a perfect example of that is a guy that I listened to when I lived in Peru. Um, his name is Nick. And he was, you may have seen him. I think he was even on Oprah at one point. He loves Jesus. Um, and so it's a really cool platform that he has. But Nick has no arms and no legs. Yeah. Um, and he has talked about that journey of suffering in his life. Um, there's another, another uh, woman, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a paraplegic. She actually spoke at my graduation uh, in high school, surprisingly, because I went to high school with a guy that was paraplegic. Um, and you hear that story is, out of deep grief and suffering, you hear this deep love for themselves, this deep knowledge of who they are. Um, and they could tell you how they know. They could tell you. Whereas, frankly speaking, I think I, and maybe many of us in our room, would struggle with this. Specifically, how do I know that I love myself? So that leads me to the next question, which is, what sort of self-talk do you have? 
That's that mind thing again. I, I, maybe I could actually add to that, what sort of things do you internalize that other people say to you? Because that's part of this self-talk. Sorry, Paula. What sort of self-talk do you have? Are you gracious to yourself? Are, uh, do you beat yourself up? <laughs> I love the looks that everybody's giving each other. <laughs> uh, chances are, if you're a perfectionist, you beat yourself up. You're self-deprecating. Um, and uh, if you, for example, um, had a different path in life than uh, many in terms of uh, continued education, a lot of times you may look upon yourself as less than. Um, there's all kinds of different ways that we look at ourselves. Um, I don't want to focus just on the negative, but it's been my experience as a pastor for the number of years that I've been a pastor is that most of the self-talk that I hear about is not the positive self-talk. It's generally pretty negative. It's pretty harmful. It's pretty hurtful. Best way I could describe it is uh, poisonous to our interior. Um, here's an even deeper question, getting closer to the roots. Are you, guys, are you ready to walk out yet? Yeah, I've, I warned you. Just remember that. Do you think God takes pleasure in you? Do you think God takes pleasure in you? Because you know yourself better than anybody else. You know what you think on your best day and your worst day. And do you think God takes pleasure in you? That he looks at each one of us with pleasure. I love all the squirming in the room. My experience, and again, this is a generalization, but if we don't know our true self in Christ, then we're going to have a really difficult time, I think, answering this question. Or if we can't answer that question, we're going to be like, uh, but is it really true? Like, yeah, I'm a beloved son or I'm a beloved daughter in Christ, but then I'm like, uh, but is that really true because I had this bad thought the other day? Or, you know, I cussed somebody out. I know that you all swear, right? <laughs> You're Lutheran, so you drink as well, so. He might know. Like, he might know, but doesn't feel that way. You're getting there, Marlene. You might know, but that doesn't mean that you feel that way. So it's right here, but for whatever reason, is this, I think it's called the 17-inch journey from your head to your heart. I never actually measured it. I feel like I should. But it can, again, that's why I love the pattern of this text. Love the Lord God with all your mind. Like it can somehow say stuck here. All of these questions that I'm asking you. Good morning. Um, all of these questions that I'm asking you. You can be stuck. You can be stuck in healthy ways and you can be stuck in negative ways. Do you think God takes pleasure in you? So, after that brief survey, here's another question. How well do you know yourself? So, you know, I've asked you all these questions so that we can hopefully be honest. How well do you know yourself? 
And I think there's an even better question, not that this one isn't important and worth writing down. The next one is, how well do you know yourself in Christ? And the reason why I ask this question is, Jesus says something really critical that I keep trying to point out every single week in verse 28 from Luke 10. He says to the lawyer, this man who knows the law better than most, who clearly, I mean, it was like, it's the Sunday school answer. That's the version that he gave them. Like, Jesus, that's the answer for every child for Sunday school. You saw Judah, if you were here a couple weeks, like, God, that's the answer, right? This question is critical, and how you answer it is critical, because Jesus says to the lawyer, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will what? Live. How well do you know yourself in Christ? I can't. Are you all getting tired of me asking the question, do you really want to live? I mean, that's really what Jesus is pointing out. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, no matter your journey, no matter where you are in life, this is the question that he's offering them. Do you really want to live? Now, we can see and why this passage is so familiar to us is because, I mean, even the title in our Bible says, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But, but the lawyer and, the, and Jesus are having a really important conversation before they get to the Good Samaritan. And it contextualizes every single thing about this parable. You will live. So how well do you know yourself in Christ? I'm going to give you a, a, a resource first that if you wanted to, um, I think, journey. Like, if these questions that I asked you caused you a little bit of discomfort, number one, good. Number two, um, I will provide you a resource that you can take home. I mean, I don't literally have the resource. I'm saying you can buy it at Barnes & Nobles. You can buy it on Amazon. Um, I even offered them at the beginning of the year when we had all the books. It's the emotionally healthy spirituality. Emotionally healthy spirituality. Uh, that's the name of the book. Emotionally healthy spirituality. Okay? And the reason why I suggest that book, now, as with all books that authors write, do I agree with 100% of every single thing that he writes in there? No. But that's okay. And when you read the book, you're not going to agree with every single thing that he's going to write in there either. I'm providing this as a resource, uh, just throwing it out there. Um, and if you can't access one, let me know, and I will work on getting one for you. Is because part of what he does is he starts really making you answer these questions. I mean, he's not forcing you. Um, but I want to throw that out there because um, the reality that I recognize is that sometimes reading this feels pretty daunting, doesn't it? And I mean, think of how many different translations we have access to in English. A ton, right? Well over a dozen, well over 20, well over 30. And if you can speak a second language, you just opened up a whole world to another grouping. But how much time, when, when we how many times when we read this, do, are we like, oh, that makes so much sense? Or are we more like, oh, I don't really know what this says. And I think for a long time, we feel condemned by that. So we kind of like keep it closed. And 
we have like the really big Bible on our table, the family Bible, and that's where it sits, and we feel really good about it. Um, but this is meant to be worn out, the spine broken, the pages written all over. Why? Because this is where we start to find what our true source of life is, is in Christ. So today is Pentecost, right? And um, we, we know that the Spirit, as, as I put in the bulletin, Jesus says, and I will be with you always. The, the, the Spirit comes and falls upon the early church when they're in a house. It's one of my favorite things. If you don't think that Jesus loved to party, uh, you can clearly see that the Holy Spirit did. Because they are in a house, and they're just praying, and the Spirit falls, and there's so much commotion going on as a result of it that people are coming to the house to see what's going on. I mean, there's something transformative that's taking place, and it's the very Spirit of God uh, active in the church. And if you keep on reading, you're familiar with, and I don't, if you've been in the, the Lutheran church, especially for 50 years or more, you've probably heard many sermons on Pentecost. Uh, if you've only been in the church for a couple days, that's great too. Um, Peter starts preaching, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So people think that he's drunk, and he's like, no, y'all, I'm not drunk. I'm a, I would say, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I picture Peter as like a, a guy from Tennessee with that twang. You know, no, y'all, I'm not drunk. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just feel alive, you know? That's really how I, I, I see Peter here. And he just goes after it. Like he is, he holds back nothing. And why? Because he's alive. And one of the things that he says, um, and he's quoting, note how Jews quote the text that they're familiar with because they've worn out their scrolls and understanding. But Peter wasn't known for being very scholarly is he quotes the prophet Joel, and he says, in the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Are you all a part of the all flesh? Just to clarify, am I a part of it? I'm a part of it, yeah. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I'm not categorizing anybody, <laughs> young or old. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Can I just point something amazing out about this text? Are slaves known for freedom? What are they known for? Captivity. And here is this text directly oriented towards slaves, saying, you will be free. In fact, this particular, both in Joel and in Acts, this particular portion of scripture was so dangerous in our American history, that it was taken out because of slavery. You can see how freeing this text actually is, is that it would be so dangerous to a way of life for people in the South. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I mean, that's his opening salvo. It's pretty strong. This is Acts 2, uh, 
verses, what I read was verses 17 through 21. And then he just continues. But what I see is somebody that, um, I mean, we know that Peter, personality-wise, he just was kind of wild and impetuous and got himself into a lot of trouble. But then he betrayed Jesus. And then Jesus came back to him and restored his identity. He said, Peter, maybe you weren't able to answer this before. But do you think after Jesus spent time with him again that Peter could answer this question? Absolutely. And as a result of that, you see somebody that's entirely empowered and confident, certainly by the work of God, the Spirit of God falling upon them, manifesting in their presence. But I see somebody that knows himself in Christ. And I think, honestly, that's what I want for all of us this morning. I mean, I wish that I could just, like, do this. I can flip it because, you know, it's a turn knob. But I could just do that, and it would be like, okay. But the reality is, is as we saw with the disciples, it's a journey. And they lived closer to Jesus than anybody. Note that the people that spent were in close proximity of Jesus, the closest proximity. I mean, a brother that didn't believe, believed. Mary, which especially because we're not Catholics, we kind of like push Mary to the side. But Mary is a really amazing example of somebody that was transformed by just being in close proximity with Jesus. And you see that time and time again. Lazarus is another example. So it seems, at least to me, that to know yourself in Christ means that you need to be in somewhat of a close proximity to Christ. And how does one um, become in close proximity to Christ? Well, um, that's why I love Pentecost, because we have the very spirit of God within us. This, this same spirit that realigns us in the way that we live every day. Um, how many of you like control? Love me some control, too. Um, the problem is with control, and you've heard me say this, I don't know how many times, and hopefully you're growing weary of it, and that will produce some change. Um, control is antithetical to living with the Spirit of God. Um, when, for those of us that have been around uh, little children, there's this kind of interplay that takes place, right? where little kids, they're trying to figure out what power and control looks like in their life. And uh, my two-year-old is especially in those uh, stages right now. And his favorite word right now is never. <laughs> and not only has he added never, there's another word he's added, which is now never ever. <laughs> and it's even things that he wants to do. It's like, he'll say, Daddy, I want to go to the pool. And I'd be like, all right, let's go to the pool. You need to put your shoes on. Never, ever. <laughs> OK, but you want to go to the pool? Yes. Well, let's go to the pool. You need to put your Never, ever. <laughs> I mean, that's really just a minimal two-year-old example of control, is he wants to let me know how we're going to do it. And all, all I'm saying to him is, yeah, man, let's go to the pool. But because he's trying to exercise control, which I get it, as a two-year-old, he's trying to find himself and all those important childhood development things. 
But at the end of the day, he's impeding himself from doing what he truly desires because he's trying to control the situation. And I think that's often my relationship with God, is that I have difficulty going with the flow of grace in my life because I'm trying to hold on to things. I live life like this, close-handed, trying to keep control. So when Jesus is talking to the lawyer and he's saying that these are the things to do to truly live, I mean, that's a master class in letting go of control. It's having my entire life being oriented around God rather than my entire life being oriented around me. And the only way that we understand that love your neighbor as yourself is when ourself is oriented around Christ. Any other definition of yourself is immediately going to put us in a situation where we will not only love ourselves healthily, but we're also probably going to be detrimental to the people in our lives. Does that make sense? My perfect example of that is, um, I don't know, war. Right? If everybody loved themselves the way that Christ loved them, knew who they were, do you think that we would have war? I mean, that gets us into a whole other philosophical sort of conversation. I see David smiling back there. <laughs> um, there's, there are some deeper things afoot, but, but maybe the important thing that we should put out is that when you know who you are in Christ, maybe you're less inclined to operate out of unhealthiness and more in healthiness. Um, Jesus teaches his disciples, and we see Paul later saying, we're a part of the ministry of reconciliation, right? What is reconciliation? It means that something is broken that can't be fixed, at least visually or relationally. And then somebody comes in, and suddenly this unfixable thing becomes renewed and restored, and in many ways becomes altogether new. Ministry of Reconciliation. I think the way that we go about the Ministry of Reconciliation is really through knowing who we are in Christ. Because we're, recon we're reconciling somebody to something. It's not just like, hey, we're going to fix this, like it's a broken toy or something like that. We're reconciling them into something, which is fullness in Christ. That's really exciting stuff. I mean, that's what Peter's doing in Acts at Pentecost is through the empowerment of the Spirit of God. He's saying, you all have been led astray. You're in brokenness. You don't know who you really are, but I'm here to proclaim to you this is who you are because this is who Christ is. It stands within reason that if you look to Christ and you love Christ and you know Christ, you will know yourself. And the more you know yourself, the more you'll know Christ. And the more you know Christ, the more you know yourself. And the more you know yourself, the more you know Christ. Should I keep on saying that? That's part of the reason why we have the liturgical calendar is because it takes us through this deep understanding of who Christ is and who we are. Who Christ is, who we are. It's a journey together. I also love how the liturgical calendar in our summer months, I just love how it falls in seasonally for us, is that when do you generally have the most time, uh, free time in the year? Huh? In the summertime especially if you're a teacher, in the summertime. And we have the liturgical calendar, which is saying, this is who Christ is, this is who Christ is, this is who Christ is, this is who Christ is. And then it says, and this is who you are, and this is who you are, and this is who you are. 
live. And I love that it falls in our summertime because what does it say? Love your neighbor as yourself. So as you're coming to understand who Christ is and you start to come understand who you are in Christ, then you can start loving your neighbor as yourself. See how that just beautifully works? It doesn't work in South America. I tried it in Peru. It doesn't work because, you know, the seasons are reversed. It's wintertime, and it's horrible. Um, <laughs> but it works for us, okay? It works for us. I'm going um, to speak some truth over you this morning. Are you aware that Christ is in you? I mean, legitimately, Christ in you. We shake our heads. Can you go back to that very first question, Tom? I'm, I know I'm, I'm saying a lot this morning, and I will end with some of these passages. Um, there you go. What or who is our true self in Christ? Um, I'm going to just rapid fire some passages. If you struggle with the re- so many of you shook your head, yes, I know Christ is in me. But it's, it's shaking around in here. But maybe it hasn't hit here. And maybe that's impeding you from loving neighbors as yourself. Uh, Romans 8.10, I'm not going to read them to you, but if you wanted to write some verses down that talks about Christ being in you, Romans 8.10. Another one is 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7. I'll give you one more. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7. And another one is Galatians 1, 15 through 16. Galatians 1, 15 through 16. I, um, I had Marlene, knowing that I wasn't going to be, it's already 10.05. We started late, though, so I still have another 20 minutes to talk. Um, I had Marlene read The Fruit of the Spirit because I knew that I wouldn't have any possible way of talking about that, unless you want me to keep going. Okay. Um, Galatians talks a lot about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, Just a little fact, because you know I like my history. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this fact, but um, the early church, part of the reason not, I mean, I will say the, the primary reason that the church spread was because of Jesus. I mean, that's, right, that's the reason. Um, and certainly we see in Pentecost that they're empowered by the Spirit of God like Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Like, note, they didn't stay in the house when the Spirit moved in them and upon them. They went outside. They went outwards, right? I mean, we see that in the text. I'm not saying anything the text doesn't say. And they did so in the fruit of the Spirit, which, again, Marlene read for us this morning. And I challenge you to read it. But what set apart the early church, and I'm not saying that you know, we're supposed to be like the first century church. We're supposed to be the body of Christ here in Highland, California in 2000. We're in 19, right? It feels like I don't even know what year it is. 2019. But what set apart the early church, um, and you see this throughout history, is that all these social outcasts and pariahs, those were the people that the early church went to, the lepers, the prostitutes. I mean, the people that are known for being the most unclean, whether it's in Roman society or within Jewish society and culture, 
Those were the people the early church went to. They served and loved unabashedly. They didn't care about what people thought, for the most part, I'm sure. I mean, people still kind of worry. But they just went for it. And the reason for that is because of this. Now, you can still see in Acts, because that starts to talk about the early church, there's still a lot of brokenness there. People are trying to work it out. I mean, suddenly you have people like Jews and people like Gentiles that suddenly have to coexist together their entire lives. It's been the opposite of that. That's where a text like love your neighbor as yourself makes a lot of sense. And that's what they did. So the question um, before us, I think, is if we really all focused on who we are in Christ, do you think that that would transform your life? And do you think that it would transform your relationships? Does anybody in this room have it all figured out? I love that sarcastic laugh. Heck no. All of us are meant to be asking this question every day. And genuinely, this is a question that I'm asking. Because this is how we find life. So I said that Christ is in you, the very spirit of God is in you. I wrote down here, spirit of, the spirit of God moves in us, realigns our lives to who we are within him. I'll say that again. The spirit of God moves in us and realigns our lives so we know who we are within him. Within him, as he is in us. Let me uh, pray for us. I hope that I was really disruptive to your morning today. Um, but just know that I'm dis disruptive to myself. I'm asking these very same questions. So we're in the boat together, just like Jesus, until, of course, he you know, got out of the boat. Um, uh, I want us to be really intentional about these questions. Let me pray. Um, God, we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. We thank you um, that you are a God that is disruptive, um, but you do so in such a gentle and loving way. I thank you that you invite us to love our neighbor, but that you first say it would be really good for us to know who we are in you. I can see that it's very easy for us to when we don't know who you are and who we are in you, to have massive savior complexes and really just to, to do these things for our own benefit, for our own egos. Or maybe um, we've felt beaten down and hurt for so long that we don't even know who we are anymore. Perhaps um, there's something that we didn't expect that came our way and suddenly that's disrupted everything that we thought that we knew. We don't know what today will bring, and we don't know if we'll even have tomorrow, but we do know that we are beloved sons and daughters of you, and that your work on the cross has wrought freedom for us, freedom from sin and death. Um, not to say that we won't experience the effects of the sin and death around us, but that in the midst of that, we can truly live. 
That's a promise that you give to us that I pray that we could all take hold of today. And in any way that these questions have caused unhealthy discomfort, God, I pray that um, you would let those things fall away. But for all of us that are sitting and kind of squirming in our chairs, um, because you may be speaking something to us, I pray that we would take hold of that. Um, I pray that we would go down that, that part of the road with you, that you would give us the courage to do that. Um, I'm excited about, Lord, what you may do as a result of it, as we come to know who we truly are in you because of your work, not our own. And that I pray finally, Lord, that the fruit of the Spirit would flourish in our midst, um, in our personal lives, in our relational lives, in our communal lives, here at House of God, but also with our neighbors, our coworkers, our community. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.